Hey, what up? This is Shegs from ShegsAndStuff.com, and today's blog post is titled, The Jesus You Probably Haven't Met Yet. To find out more about this blog, please visit my blog at www.ShegsAndStuff.com, where through biblical teaching and encouragement, we remind you weekly that God not only loves you, but still likes you. In a 2012 article for Relevant Magazine, author and speaker Matt Michalatos wrote these bothersome words about the state of Christianity and, and Christians in general. He says, when Christians imagine Jesus, he is largely schizophrenic. You know what? I've observed what he's talking about firsthand. You know, having spent most of my formative years in church and most of my adult years in ministry, I can attest to the fact that we Christians are sometimes confused about the true identity of the Savior of our souls. Uh, depending on who or how we're feeling on any particular day, one version of our Jesus is perpetually disappointed with us because we missed church last weekend or because we haven't had a single quiet devotional in the last month. But then on a really good day, possibly after listening to Oceans by Hillsong, our happier version of Jesus loves us so dearly that he'll forgive us even if we sleep around with our girlfriend or even answer our fervent prayers for a great parking spot at the mall. And it makes you go, man, will the real Jesus please stand up, right? Because we Christians seriously need a fresher biblical vision of the resurrected king. Now, fortunately, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, does this for us in the most vivid of styles. The, the book's contents were actually written by the Apostle John during a period when Christians were being persecuted politically, socially, religiously, and economically. Now, John, the apostle himself, is actually imprisoned at the time of this writing on the island of Patmos. Now, when you think about Patmos, you might be tempted to picture John as Jack Sparrow, who's stranded on some long stretch of white sand beach, but you would be wrong. You see, Patmos is a barren volcanic island, and to be exiled there was a common form of punishment for criminals, and it involved exhausting physical labor under the watchful eye and whip of a Roman soldier, along with inadequate food, clothing, and slabs of rocks to sleep on. Now keep in mind that John at this point is much older in life and happens to be the last living apostle and father of the church. The remaining 11 disciples have been violently martyred for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So picture John, if you will. Imagine the pain and isolation that this elderly apostle must have been suffering. Right? I mean, he was, he, was, he was alone here, and adding to the agony of his loneliness is the fact that the church that he loves so dearly was under attack from heretics who had finagled their way into her and began leading many people astray through their false teachings. What may, however, have been the, uh, taking the greatest toll on John was the fact that it had been several decades since Jesus ascended to heaven, and he hadn't yet returned like he promised he soon would. And so John couldn't possibly be running any lower on, on hope. If anyone needed a fresh vision of Jesus, man, John, John was it. But just when the night seemed darkest, John the Apostle on the island of Patmos hears a thunderous voice behind him that scares the living daylights out of him. Now, it actually happens to be a Sunday. John himself says he was on the Lord's Day. And this loud, booming voice that John hears, which he describes as the sounding like a trumpet, 
belongs to Jesus Christ. So, so this is a good day. This is an exciting day for John because Jesus has just disturbed normal. When John turns around to look in the direction of the voice, he hears, uh, the, the voice that he hears, he beholds a sight that's so terrifyingly awesome that he actually passes out. He falls unconscious. But when Jesus walks up to him in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus gently picks him up off the floor and John immediately regains his consciousness. And when John finally looks face to face with the resurrected glorified Christ, four realities become inescapably clear. Number one, Jesus is no longer bloodied and bruised like one of the last times John saw him. Number two, Jesus is now fully clothed in a blinding glory worthy of God himself, or as I like to call him, he looks like nuclear Jesus. Number three is this, that though everything in John's life and ministry seemed chaotic and out of whack, Jesus had apparently always been in control of the affairs of the world and the church and nothing as we'll see through the course of the book nothing has escaped his watchful eyes and then number four is the fact that jesus had dealt death a death blow and all of these four realities are really summed up in the words of jesus himself in revelation chapter 1 verse 17 and 19 where he tells john he says don't fear i am first i am last i'm alive i died but i came to life and my life is now forever you see these keys in my hands? They open and lock death's doors, and they open and lock hell's gates. Now, John, write down everything you see, things that are and things that are about to be. And so through the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus is actually going to grant John um, a spiritual experience that transcends the bounds of normal human comprehension. You see, empowered by the Holy Spirit, John will be shown astonishing events dating from eternity past through our present and further into the future, all of which is intended to convey one clear message, and it's this, that Jesus Christ holds all the affairs of the world in his hands. Or as a pastor friend of mine recently expressed, Jesus Christ is in control of who's in control. So take that in for a moment and ponder its implication for your life. And for what you've always believed about Jesus and, and what you presently believe about him. Because I did. And in so doing, I find myself in awe of the bigness of Jesus Christ more than I ever have. I also now find myself filled with an assurance that no matter how out of whack or even chaotic my life or our country or the rest of the world may seem at any moment, God is not only not flustered, but every event that has transpired in my life, in your life, in our nation, across the globe, and pretty much in every corner of the earth, from the beginning of time, through this week, into our future, to the very end of the days, all of it is not only in the hands of Jesus Christ, but has been entrusted to him for him to bring to a culmination. So if you would, allow me to reintroduce you to Jesus Christ, um, who appeared to John on that lonely afternoon on the island of Patmos. In fact, this will actually launch us into this new block series through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation as we explore the seven letters of Jesus Christ. Now, in John's encounter with the resurrected Christ, there are actually five divine features about Jesus himself that I am certain, as we look at, will give you the assurance that you most desperately need to know that he's still fully in control and perfectly holds the affairs of the world and your life in his hands. 
hand. So let's jump right in, okay? Let's start with Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, right? Where we see Jesus clothed in an outfit that's to die for, or that literally he died for. Let me ask you this. What's the first thing you notice when you meet someone? You know, much of the time, for many people, the, smi the person's smile or their eyes will catch their attention. But for some weird reason, many of us, like me, tend to pay attention to other people's clothing first. This was no different for the Apostle John when he sees nuclear Jesus, right? Verse 13, John says, among the lampstands was someone, this is John reacting to Jesus. He says that there was someone like a son of man, which is a title that Jesus has used to describe himself multiple times in the scriptures, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Talk about the hashtag who are you wearing, right? Well, you see, Jesus, when John sees him, is no longer wearing the simple clothing of a carpenter. He's no longer in the bloodied single cloth that he was wearing on the cross, nor is Jesus wearing the thick linen damp with spices and ointments that he was wrapped in in the tomb. Rather, when John sees him, Jesus is dressed to impressed and clothed in the fullness of the glory of Almighty God. Now, the robe and the golden sash that John sees Jesus wearing is actually a reference or, or really is a picture of the clothing and the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1 to 4, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, was called to serve as high priest of Israel and instructed to wear something quite similar to what Jesus was wearing. And so this message was clear to John and, in fact, should be clear to us. And it's this, that Jesus Christ is our high priest who interceded on our behalf before God, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. So think about that, because this means that no matter how, because of Jesus' intercession on our behalf, this means that no matter how junky your life may presently be, no matter how great you may think your sin is, um, you can now approach God's throne with great confidence because Jesus already made your case before the Father. Hence, you are eternally welcome. So, so even as a Christian, you might be going, but my life is this, my life is that. Listen, Scripture would tell you that you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus so that you, you can actually pass the dress code when you stand before God. Right. So so that when God looks at you, he doesn't he, he doesn't just see your sin, but he sees the covering of his son on you that basically says this one has been paid for. He may enter. And man, that, that's great news, right? Because it means Jesus broke the barrier. He fixed the relational and the spiritual rift between us and God and, and reconciled us back into a right relationship with him. And it's for this reason that you and I are able to pray with confidence to God, knowing that he not only hears us, but will answer our prayer. And it's also the picture that was being conveyed to the Apostle John as he stared in awe and wonder at the Son of Man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Here's the second feature. All right, and it has to do with the Jesus's hair. Now, I understand. I'm going to talk about this for a second, right? But, but I understand the worry about for many of us today about having gray hair and the needs to want to dye our hair to a darker color to look younger. I, I get that, but, but I don't know. Maybe it's because I grew up in a Nigerian culture where age was actually embraced and celebrated. But man, I look at people with gray hair or white hair, and I look at it as a crown of splendor and glory, like the author of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31. 
Like when I'm looking for a wise counsel or for godly leaders and mentors, I got to be honest, man, I prefer to start with the grade or white hair squad first because I know that for the most part, they've been there, done that, right? And I know we live in a culture today that reveres the young and almost derides the old. But listen, in other cultures in the world and even in biblical times, white hair was always, gray hair or white hair was always associated with wisdom and, and there was great respect for those who wore it. Like, like, think about it for a second. Picture in your mind's eye a white-haired older man in a suit or a gray-haired woman in a business suit. Doesn't that image command a certain amount of respect, maybe even admiration? Well, let's go back to Jesus for a second in verse 14 and notice what his head looks like. Verse 14, John says, when I looked at him, I noticed that the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. So the white hair on Jesus' head is indicative of of his eternality, which essentially means he has been around for a long, long, long time and that there is nothing that he does not know, as you'll discover through the rest of the book of Revelation when Jesus begins to reveal things that even those who were thinking it weren't even aware they were thinking. And we see this, in fact, in Scripture where Jesus would basically read people's minds. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the same description of, of Jesus here is used to describe God the Father himself, who in that account is referred to as the Ancient of Days. So the point here is this. Jesus is eternally brilliant, right? Not only is there nothing he does not know, but there is no thought formulating in your mind right now that he did not already know before you were born. And so this should offer you great comfort because it means Jesus truly understands how you feel. All right, let's move on. Revelation to the latter part of verse 14, right? Because there's this there's this thing where John's looking at him, his clothing, his glorious robe, he his his um hair is white like wool. And and the next thing that happens almost causes me to think, man, John is like, don't look him in the eye, right? Because Jesus's eyes are very, very telling what happens here. Now, I'm not a master at this yet, but I've actually become fairly adept at being able to tell if someone is lying to me by watching their eyes closely, because the eyes are truly a window to the soul. However, in this case, Jesus's eyes are the ones piercing even the strongest gaze, because John says in verse 14, the latter part of it, that Jesus's eyes were like blazing fire. I mean, think about that for a second. In fact, he adds in verse 17 that his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. I mean, that's a terrifying sight to behold, okay? Let's face it. Resurrected Jesus is scary, and the power that he carries can only possibly be measured on a nuclear scale, if that. And the message being conveyed here with his eyes, really this picture is this, that, that, that when Jesus looks at our, because that's what fire does, fire purifies, right? So when Jesus looks at our lives, he, he sees beyond our public self, which is the image that we present to the world, usually a more perfect version of ourselves. Uh, Jesus even sees beyond our private self, which is the role that we play and what people know us as. So that's, that's where dads, where moms, where students, where boss, whatever you are, right? Jesus goes beyond that, and the Lord with eyes ablaze with fire sees through any and every facade, through to who we truly are in our personal selves, that part of us that no one but us knows about. 
His fiery gaze searches and reveals the very depths of our souls, which is why he himself says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And it's also why Hebrews chapter 4, 13 says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the, this fiery eyes, though terrifying, is actually of great comfort and as well as some level of reasonable trepidation, I guess, right? Like, because that's a scary sight to behold. This so because it means, so anyway, it's, it's encouraging because it means that every false accusation that's ever been made against you will someday by, be exposed to by God for the lie that they were. Like God himself will vindicate you because he sees through to the matter. At the same time, however, his fiery gaze also means that all your secret thoughts and deeds, though presently visible in his sight, will ultimately someday be exposed in God's presence so that you get a truly accurate picture of yourself. This may be good news for you or, or bad news, but you should know that, right? But then Paul, uh, John, observing his face, his, manages to take his gaze a little lower. Like, I can't help but wonder how in the world John even had time to look at what happened, look at what verse 15 talks about, which is Jesus's feet. Like his eyes and his face alone would have been too mesmerizing to take my gaze off. But John manages to look away long enough to notice that Jesus has no shoes on. But more importantly, that his feet look like furnished, fired bronze, right? Verse 15, latter part of verse 15 says his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. So, so bronze is actually made up from two materials, right? Iron and copper. Now, iron on its own is very strong, but it rusts easily. Copper, on the other hand, does not rust, but it's not very strong. And so in bronze, one complements the other, and you end up with something that's much stronger, very solid material. And in Jesus' case, it has the added feature of also being fiery. And this picture of his feet is really intended to convey great strength, justice, and really established footing. Right? In ancient times, kings sat on elevated thrones. Right, uh, When their subjects approached them, they would essentially be beneath the king's feet. And so Jesus' bronze feet really represent his authority and his ability to bring down judgment on those that he deems guilty, which is what we actually see him doing through the book of Revelation. And this is actually of great encouragement, right? Because it means that Jesus Christ will someday call every man and woman to give an account for their lives and be held accountable for their actions. So, so think about your life. Is there an injustice in your life, in your community, perhaps in culture or even overseas that troubles your soul? Listen, certainly fight in your own power to make things right as much as you can for those who don't have a voice. But know this. The true judge himself will someday do the most honest evaluation and execute honest judgment on every living soul that has ever lived. So let's just say on that day, you don't want to be on the wrong side of those furnace fired bronze feet. So John notices all those physical features about Jesus, right? But then in verse 16, he actually hears Jesus, really, first, verse 15b and 16b, he hears Jesus, right? Because verse 15b, uh, the latter part of verse 16, also says, and his voice, that's Jesus, was like the sound of rushing waters. And coming out of his voice was a sharp, double-edged sword. So think about this. John, earlier in Revelation, when John first hears Jesus, he actually describes Jesus as sounding like a trumpet. But but I guess as he listens a little more closely, he picks up on the fact that Jesus actually sounds more like a rushing 
war like rushing water so clearly jesus was only whispering when he sounded like a trumpet right because his normal speaking voice apparently sounds like a mighty rushing wave ever heard one of those there's also this detail about a razor sharp double-edged sword projecting from his mouth so in ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 the apostle paul refers to the word of god as the sword of the spirit and so here we see the words coming out of Jesus' mouth as a literal, pictured as a literal sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, exposing the inner thoughts and desires of all of mankind. And its impact on those who hear it is as powerful as being hit by a mighty ocean wave. Ever seen that happen? So the message here really is clear. Once again, the words of Jesus are, are authoritative, they're commanding, and frankly, it's earth shattering. When Jesus speaks, not only will every living soul's ear perk up, but its impact, the impact of his voice, of his what he's saying, will, will call every single person to, to full attention. Now, incidentally, it's this same voice that every believer, according to 1 Thessalonians, that every single believer will someday hear on the day when Jesus comes down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, followed by us. That's the voice we'll someday hear. That same commanding voice that John heard. Man, what a day that will be. And so it's with these, it's these five divine features in a resurrected Christ. Um, um, that really, that I urge you as a Christian to always keep in the forefront of your mind at all times. Remember, remember that, that he is clothed as our great high priest who intercedes before God. His hair is an indication of his eternal wisdom, his, his eternality. His eyes see through every facade that we may, we may put up. His words are powerful. His feet bring justice. Do not forget that picture of your resurrected Christ. Jesus may have been tamed in the pop culture, but know this, that the Lord and Savior, the resurrected Christ of the Bible, still roars as loud and powerfully as a king. And someday every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all that is in them will say in his presence to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, they will say praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Man, I, I pray that you would come to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Lord, King, and Savior. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, if you want to get more details about the blog or check out other messages, please visit my blog, www shegsandstuff.com God bless you, have a great week and don't forget that God not only loves you but still likes you